y'all. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I chat with award-winning LGBT journalist Samantha Allen about her fantastic debut travel memoir, Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States. This book, which was published in March, takes readers on an incredible journey through Red State America. Whether Samantha is in Provo, Utah, where she began her own journey as a Mormon college student, or with Jess Herbst, the first openly transgender mayor in Texas history, it feels like you are in the backseat alongside Samantha and her friend Billy. Real Queer America gives us with a much-needed spotlight on the extraordinary LGBT communities in states such as Utah, Texas, and Indiana. Today, as a happily married transgender woman, Samantha is the perfect champion and author to put these stories in the hands of allies around the world. I loved every second of this book, and I was so honored to chat with Samantha about her fantastic debut. I really hope you enjoy our episode. Hello, Samantha. I'm so excited to chat with you today. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be here with you. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait to just dive right into this book. We're going to America. In order to get into your book properly, I have lit a magnolia candle and I'm ready and I'm excited. Do you have a fried green tomato? I I don't have a fried green tomato only because we can't really get green tomatoes over here and it breaks my heart. I told you when I was messaging you on Twitter that I'm planning a big book research trip to the Deep South. I am driving to Juliet, Georgia, which is where the film Fried Green Tomatoes took place and I'm actually going to eat in the Whistle Stop Cafe. I'm so excited. A lot of my friends when I lived in Atlanta went and did that and to my everlasting shame, I never got out there. (sighs) Oh my God, Samantha, that just has to be fixed. You have to go back and do that. Yeah, I'll be back in Atlanta later this year to read the book and putting it on the agenda. Oh, perfect. And I know that it's a silly thing to get so excited about, but I actually looked it up. That film is 28 years old this year. Makes me feel super old. Did you love it as well? Gosh, yeah. You're making me sad about how old I am. (laughs) So, of course, we are here today not just to talk about how much we love the South, but to talk about your fantastic book, Real Queer America, which, as I messaged you, absolutely loved it, and I couldn't put it down. I'm pretty sure that even though I gifted myself a week to read it, that I read it more than I probably slept, which I think is a totally fine thing to admit. Wouldn't you agree? That makes me feel so flattered as an author that someone would stay up, like, reading the book, get up a lot writing it. You know those books that are just so good that you just can't put them down? It's like two in the morning, and you're like, I have to get up at six for work. This is totally fine. I know it's amazing to me that you would have that experience with it, because like a lot of authors, I imagine by the time I'm done writing it, I'm like, this is garbage. This is trash. No one would ever want to read this. Just like labored over every sentence of it. Before you give us a synopsis of what it's about, I wanted to read one of my favorite passages. If the dominant LGBT narrative of the 20th century was a gay boy in the country buying a one-way bus ticket to the Big Apple, the untold story of the 21st is the queer girl in Tennessee who stays put. That, to me, is just poetry, and I absolutely loved that. And it really, really set the scene for me in terms of the journey that I knew I was going to go on. And... I would love for you to take us through what Real Queer America is about. 
you found my thesis statement. I always have to be sure there's got to be one sentence in here that says exactly what the book argues. But yeah, the real queer America, LGBT stories from red states. It's a travel memoir about a red state queer road trip through Utah, Texas, Tennessee, Indiana, a bit of Arkansas, Mississippi, Georgia, and it ends in Florida. So I had a bunch of states and I was touring LGBT communities in these places where people don't expect to find them, I think, given that dominant narrative that we had for so long that LGBT people just get out and get on a bus to San Francisco or New York. Like I knew from both experience and from reporting on LGBT life in America that a huge number of LGBT folks live in the South, especially I think like over 3 million LGBT Americans live in the South. And I wanted to kind of call attention to these folks who I think often go ignored or underreported in mainstream accounts of LGBT life. So in the summer of 2017, I got in the car with my friend Billy in Salt Lake City, Utah, and just started driving, interviewing, exploring what life meant. And I, you know, what I found often was there's this vibrancy and warmth and solidarity in LGBT red state communities because folks know what the stakes are. Like every year there's anti-LGBT legislation. So people kind of are bonded together by those threats sometimes in a way that I see in blue state communities, maybe a little bit less cohesion. So that was kind of the thrust of the book is I wanted to show like my love for these places. I wanted to tell my own story that runs through these places, but also like showcase new stories of people that I met along the way. And that's one of the things that I was going to touch on a little bit later, but I'll say right now as well. I loved that you weaved your story throughout the book and also that you shared that spotlight with other stories as well. So it wasn't, they got a little bit of airtime and it was really about your journey through these states. Everyone got that spotlight kind of highlight their story. And I really loved that. And I can't believe that it's only been out for a couple of months. I mean, it feels like, you know, I've been chatting forever about this. And, you know, I just wanted to say congratulations on all the success. Love to know how you came up with this idea. I know this is, you know, something that you live and breathe every day, but I would also just love to know how the idea came into your head. Yeah, I mean, Chris, thank you. Like, it's been such a joy to watch it, like, connect with folks, uh, especially with LGBT folks in red states, like, going to readings or just meeting new people that I didn't meet while writing the book who are like, gosh, this really resonates with me. Like, that means so much to me. The book was, in a lot of ways, like a, you know, a passion project for me. Uh, I spent fair bit of time doing this and and chose, you know, to be honest, a pretty expensive project, like traveling across the country for two months. And it's just been so overwhelming to like get that kind of response from folks. But I guess I kind of always had a project like this somewhere in my heart. I'm really passionate about LGBT stories. And I also love to travel. I love road trips. I love big, long, multi-day treks across the United States. At this point, I've you know, driven up and down each coast half a dozen times and driven east to west, I, maybe six or seven times by now. Oh my gosh. And I, I, 
I think I was always looking for some sort of excuse to combine those two passions. Yeah. And then sort of after the 2016 presidential election here in the States, I was seeing a fair bit of anger directed at Red State America for the election result. Uh, a lot of folks saying like, oh, blue state taxes go to pay for your red state lives and you're just a drain on us and that kind of thing and you're holding us back. That was frustrating to me. I think we also saw in the American press after the election a strong desire to figure out like what had happened, like how did Trump get elected? That turned into a lot of profiles of Trump voters living in the Rust Belt or the upper Midwest. And I sort of wanted to tell like a different story about the LGBT and other progressive folks that I knew Mm -hmm. who were living in these places who clearly didn't want Trump to get elected and who are transforming the country from the inside out. Maybe not fast enough to avert the result that happened in 2016, but certainly over the next two decades are going to reshape the country, I think. And I wanted to kind of get out there this really vital moment where we're seeing a lot of change and transformation around LGBT issues in red state America and Mm -hmm. get a really grounded, personal first-hand account of that change. I think what's really great about your book and what everyone will find out when they read it, which absolutely everyone should do, is it really calls attention to, as you said, these stories and these people have been there. And it's not necessarily a surprise that these stories exist in the states that they do, although I was very surprised of the amount of stories that were coming through in your book. But these people, these stories have been there for years. But the fact that one book took this collection of these stories and put it out there for everyone to read, everyone to have access to, I think is really cool and a really great example of the transformation and the change that absolutely needs to keep happening in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think concretely national media, by virtue of being concentrated in cities like New York, Washington, D.C., L.A., hasn't seen a lot of these stories. They're limited by travel budget. It's not often that a reporter from a major paper on the coast will get the budget to go someplace like Mississippi to write about an LGBT nightclub in Jackson, for instance. I mean, The Washington Post did a lovely profile of a bar that I covered in the book. But yeah, I think reporters, and I'm a journalist in my day job, can feel pretty limited about what we can do from desks on the coast. And I really thought it was so important to kind of get away from my desk for a long, extended period of time and just like enmesh myself in these worlds so that I could produce some sort of bigger document to help change the conversation around LGBT life in America. That was always the goal. I was wondering, actually, did you feel like you had even more fuel for this book because you write about it every day? Or was it kind of the opposite where you wrote this book based on kind of your original ideas? And then when you went back to your day job, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, I have more of a hunger for this than I did before. I meet a lot of really interesting people in kind of my day job as a journalist. I have the chance to interview a lot of LGBT people. And since writing the book, I have sort of turned my attention more to red state stories. I felt like I was gravitating to it before but especially now having written the book seeing how it connected with folks the stories that I'm interested in telling in my career going forward wherever it takes me are these kind of stories oh that's so great and I love that they go hand in hand that's wonderful so I want to take us to the very beginning 
to a place called Provo, Utah, which most people know as the place where Brigham Young University is. That is BYU, as we call it in the States. And I just thought this was a very special place for you to start the book because you went to BYU and it's where you began your transition. So it's a massively special place and we get to be a part of that when we read the book, which is just so exciting. And in this chapter, in the very beginning, when you return to Provo as a transgender woman, I don't know if it was just me. I would love to connect with other people who read this book and ask them if they felt the exact same way. But I found myself holding my breath in terms of like anticipation on what was actually going to happen. And I was just wondering, did you feel the same when you returned? Did you feel like returning to that place where you started gave you the opportunity to actually let go and exhale and and really return as your true self. Yeah, absolutely. Provo was the place I was the most nervous to go out of all of the stops in the book. And it's why I chose it to be first. When I was living in Provo, I lived there uh, roughly from 2005 to 2007. I was deeply closeted, you know, had not yet come out as a transgender woman, was only exploring my identity in secret and like parked cars and corners and parking lots and that kind of thing. And I was deeply depressed and isolated when I lived there. I was living a double life. Like on one hand, I was going to school, being perceived as this young Mormon man. And yet, even though I didn't quite have vocabulary like transgender yet, like Mm -hmm. I knew that that wasn't what I was. And it's really just psychically draining to be living that kind of dual existence. Gosh, but Provo does like hold a really interesting place in my heart. I've been writing a little bit more about Provo recently, actually. I think part of what it speaks to is like LGBT people, we sometimes can't help the places that we love. Provo was a place that I felt like hurt me tremendously. And yet I love waking up and seeing like Mount Timpanogos staring down at me. I loved the BYU creamery that made fresh ice cream. I loved walking up the canyon trails Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing and and driving around the streets at night. And so I kind of wanted the Provo chapter to capture some of that painful, but also productive ambivalence that LGBT people can feel about places where we felt tremendous pain. Mm -hmm. We love places that sometimes don't always love us back. That's what part of what the Provo chapter was for me was taking this place where I was wary of it, having had the experiences that I had before, but kind of opening myself up to loving it again. Yeah, of course. It's just kind of rediscovering yourself in a way that just feels more wholesome, I imagine. It was surreal to be back there having transitioned process. I was in the very early stages of exploring in Utah. It took me a few years after leaving BYU to finally formally get started on transition. But like, it was so surreal to go back being where I am in my life now Mm -hmm. and just being like, gosh, these things that I were afraid of that seemed so big and scary at the time are now small. This is a place like any other and I can hold my head high and be here. Do you find yourself looking back to the past often or are you more of a person where it's kind of like I've lived and learned and I do love those aspects of the past and what they taught me but also forward thinking. Are you more like that? You know I think through the process of writing the book it was a process of coming to terms with pastness. Yeah. uh, If any sense. I have a fair amount of 
early adulthood traumas in my life, leaving Mormonism. I didn't write about this so much in the book, but I had open heart surgery in 2008. Um, and then I not as transgender in 2012. And so a lot went wrong for me in my 20s, epistemologically mm -hmm. and physically and gender wise, it felt to me living through it like a series of, of catastrophes yeah. that feel lucky to have survived. And yet I think through the process of revisiting those stories and writing the book, I've really come to terms with some of that and also been able to locate some of the pleasures of that very tumultuous time. Yeah, of um, course. Finding that through the pain even. Yeah. And that's something you're not willing to do when you're living through it. For me, I guess when I came out as transgender in 2012, a lot of it felt like, oh, well, that whole past decade was just a wash. Let's throw that in the garbage bin and never remember it uh -huh. ever again. And not only does that not work if you want to write memoir, yeah. you have to remember it. I think it's also unfair to yourself to discard entire chunks of your life. There's a moment near the end of the book because I opened the book with sort of me driving around Provo in 2007 mm -hmm. like feeling scared and isolated and afraid afraid of discipline from this Mormon-owned university afraid of what my parents would think about me if I were to ever come out to them about what was going on with gender stuff and by the end of the book that I remember those hours differently is like being full of delicious potential because mm -hmm. often the moments that are the most painful for you are also the moments where you're growing and you're starting on a path to becoming yourself. Those moments deserve the honor and, and well. recognition. I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Because essentially, Samantha, all of that, which is awful and painful, has made you into who you are. Yeah. It, it's a process of allowing yourself to recognize that. Yeah. Because I Sometimes we experience these broader life traumas as external impositions rather than as some part of process of the that journey. we understand. Yeah. yeah. And I think, again, that's one of the things I loved about your book is you didn't ease over the pain. You really brought us into everything. So we saw your pleasure. We saw your pain. We saw the good parts of the relationships. We saw the bad parts of the relationships. And one of the things that I loved about this particular chapter is the amazing people that you met and chatted with while you were in Provo. So you were telling us your story, but also weaving in those extra characters as well when you went back. And as I said, this book isn't just about your journey. You share that spotlight with other members of the LGBT community. And I wanted to ask those particular moments when you were chatting with everyone that you met, what was your favorite thing about that? What did you love the most about connecting with those people? I think it's really sacred to be able to hear other people's stories. It's a privilege that I've never wanted to take for granted as an author doing nonfiction like this. You're parachuting into people's lives often at incredibly vulnerable moments and asking them to open up to you. And that was really special to me. One uh, set of people that I interviewed in the Provo chapter was a, a mother, a Mormon mother, and her transgender son, uh, Wendy and Miles, respectively. And I interviewed them at a point where I think Miles had only come out like a few weeks earlier. And so Wendy was still kind of stumbling over pronouns, still early in the process of figuring out what was going on, mm -hmm. acceptance, love. And Wendy 
to her everlasting credit, was like one of the most amazing parents of a trans kid that I've ever seen, just in terms of wanting to get it right and talking about the change in her son's demeanor and attitude. And it was really moving to be able to be there and to ask them questions about their lives, about that process. And I always try and reciprocate in kind. I always want to share some of my story too, because I feel like if you're going to be vulnerable with me, you're owed vulnerability from me. That was sort of what I wanted to do in the book versus a more kind of traditional objective, like top-down journalistic sociological examination where I'm talking about these people as if I'm an ethnographer taking notes on their experience. I want to share moments with them and be human with them that came across, I hope, in the Provo chapter especially. Mormonism is a complicated part of my own history and people I was interviewing knew that and we had to talk about it like we had to address it and I'm sure that made the conversations even more special because you were sharing that common thread and I would imagine and as you tell throughout your book it builds those lasting relationships and those lasting connections as well that will continue on forever. Yeah, I keep in touch with the people that I wrote about in the book. I try to see them again if I'm going to their area for yeah. a book tour reading or that kind of thing. But yeah, I made, made lifelong friends writing this. And one of those lasting connections and friends that you chatted with was Emmett, who was one of the people that you met in Provo. And I really liked Emmett. I don't know why, but his love of nature really got to me. And I was messaging you while I was reading this and we talked back and forth about how Emmett finds God through nature. And I just thought that was so lovely because in a time where 2019, where technology and we're on our phone all the time and it looks like people are just head down looking into this little piece of plastic, it's really easy to just lose yourself in that and not enjoy the moment of being outside, of actually not being on your technology and just enjoying good old nature. I just saw this as such a beautiful irony about coming back to nature about rebirth and the beauty in who we are and I just wanted to ask because religion and faith and God is not something that just exists on this one chapter it's woven throughout the book like a lot of other themes and I was just wondering what did you find the most surprising thing about this when you talk to Emmett and other people about their faith and about God and religion and especially coming from the Mormon church what was surprising to you? First of all, if there's one thing I kicked myself over about the book, it's that I didn't draw the nature theme out as much as I wanted to. Because looking back on the experience of writing the book, and not just hiking with Emmett, but almost any chance that Billy and I got, we would go somewhere beautiful and walk around. Of course. And we saw it as, oh, these are like mini vacations that we're taking from the task of like doing the book research. But in fact, those were part of the experience too that I wish I had drawn out a little more explicitly. But yeah, certainly the nature theme shines through in the Provo chapter. But yeah, faith is something that's explored in the book, whether it's with Emmett Claren, who's, you know, an openly transgender Mormon man who has a complicated relationship with the church, or there's a Baptist pastor that I interview whose congregation voted to affirm uh, LGBT. In Waco, Texas. Yes, in Waco, Texas, of all places. And I think LGBT Americans 
especially or sometimes stereotype is uh, not very religious. And it's true that LGBT folks are generally less religious than non-LGBT folks. Still like a really high percentage claim some sort of faith, especially Christian faith in the U.S. And I wanted to like honor that and explore that and not dismiss it. You know, when I stopped believing in Mormonism. I left kind of 2007, formally resigned from the church in 2008. Mm -hmm. And Mormonism to me was such an all-consuming faith that demanded a lot of like epistemological allegiances in terms of what it asked you to believe Mm -hmm. that when I stopped believing in it I felt like I stopped believing in everything my heart was closed to any sort of spirituality or religion I wouldn't say I went like full hardcore atheist but there was definitely (laughs) a phase kind of moving more toward agnostic the longer time went on but it has taken a long time to be able to open myself up to any sort of exploration of faith or God or Mm -hmm. spirituality again. And to be honest, that's a process I think I was at the start of while writing the book. And it's something that Emmett inspired for me. Like I was coming to Emmett wanting him to explain to me how he could still be Mormon and transgender because the church doesn't really accept transgender folks fully and when Emmett explained his belief to me in very like forthright sincere terms I was like gosh I've got it all wrong I want Emmett to explain this to me it's the church that needs to explain to me why they wouldn't want someone like Emmett who's devoted yeah theoretically any church should want someone who yeah exactly who's a follower principles and teachings I wouldn't say I'm on a path back to organized religion Mm -hmm. but Talking to folks like Emmett or Pastor Rothas in Waco, Texas, started to open my heart again. You know, it didn't happen overnight, so it's not something that's just going to be eased back into overnight either. But I thought it was so lovely from Emmett and the other stories, other people in the stories. It's like you said at the beginning, we don't always get the love back that we put towards a place or even a person. And... I think it's safe to say that both of us as Americans, we've seen shockwaves through religion and churches in terms of um, acceptance and understanding. And for someone to still be completely devoted and stand by their beliefs, even when that love and that understanding isn't reciprocated, to me, was it gave me chills. Gosh, you know, I wrote the book in 2017, and like we're seeing a lot of that since then, a lot of split over LGBT issues with the Methodist Church this year. Uh, The Mormon Church recently rolled back one of the more cruel anti-LGBT policies around uh, the baptism of children of same-sex couples. Mm -hmm. I think with a lot of religions, we're going to hit this crossroads in the next 20 years where younger generations of adherents are saying, look, we support LGBT people and older leadership is like, oh, we don't know how we feel about that. It's going to come to a head. Yeah. Yeah. For all our sakes, I I sure hope so. And, you know, that kind of makes me think of that passage at the very end of your book where you are talking about how your nephew has two aunts and how your nephew is going to grow up as being part of that younger generation of, of believing that this is how it's supposed to be. And I just really hope that that is the case in the 20 years, as you just said. The youngest generation, for them, LGBT acceptance is like a a matter of fact. Exactly. Not even a question. So I want to leave Utah, and I want to go many, many miles down south to the best state, Texas. And I remember when I bought the book, 
and I was so excited and I had to message you on Twitter. As the saying goes, everything is bigger in Texas, which makes sense why this chapter was so big. I would love to hear you talk about your time there and not just about the Texas-shaped waffle, that is also equally important, but I would love for you to tell me about your time there and how the LGBT community there is big and beautiful, just like Texas. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of the places that I went in the book were places that I had been before and and was revisiting. And a couple of places, particularly Texas and Mississippi, were places that that I was mostly exploring for the first time. I couldn't write this book without going to Texas. A travelogue would not be complete without a tour through Texas. And when I told people that I was writing the book, I have a lot of like LGBT Texan friends on the internet who made it very clear, well, if you come to Texas, you can't just go to Austin. You also have to come to Houston. You know, I realized, gosh, I really need to get to the Rio Grande Valley too. The more I plotted out a trip through Texas, the more I realized I need at least a week and a half here out of like a six week road trip. And even then I felt like I was compressing it and could have spent three months just writing a book about LGBT life in Texas. Can you do that next, please? I would love to. The love was like instantaneous for me almost. I I think from the moment I woke up in the hotel and had the Texas shaped waffle, which I thought much like you thought it was just, you know, this coincidence that you opened onto the Texas chapter. I thought that I had been blessed from on high when my waffle came out Texas (laughs) I thought I had just like not put enough batter in the waffle iron and then it was just, oh my God, it came out Texas shape. I ran <laughs> over the with my plate. Do you know what? And- I, I have to say really quickly, like that actually probably <laughs> makes me laugh more because as you said further on down, like I can't remember seeing like a Pennsylvania shaped waffle or like all the other states, but only Texas would do a shaped waffle. If this were a thing where like every state had its own like waffle, (laughs) I would have expected it, right? But of course, Texas is like self-obsessed enough to have its own Texas shaped waffle irons. And like, I love that. I respect a state that has a strong sense of pride in itself. I love Texas. And I think out of all the places where I made new friends, Texas was where I made the most friends. And, you know, there's the saying, everything's bigger in Texas. I think it was Amber Briggle, who's this really outspoken parent of a trans kid in Texas, who says like, look, that applies to both bigotry and to love in Texas. Every year in Texas, we see anti-LGBT bills proposed. Like we see folks who are especially adamant about trying to legalize discrimination. But the response to that in love and outrage is also enormous. Like everything is on this grander scale there. And whether it was uh, Jess Herbst, who at the time was the transgender mayor of New Hope, Texas, or Nicole Lynn Perry, who's this transgender veteran who's become my friend, or Amber. I was just welcomed into these people's lives. I'm like, so glad to hear that. You know, ate together and hung out together and and shared stories from our lives together. And there's just no other place like Texas. You know, Provo was the most personally meaningful place that I went mm-hmm. in the book. But the Rio Grande Valley, to me, was the most special new place that I visited and explored because I just met so many amazing LGBT folks there who welcomed me in, who taught me a lot about what it was like to live in Rio Grande Valley, which is this very impoverished part of the U.S. where undocumented folks especially feel the pressure of border control constantly patrolling the border and 
being present in neighborhoods and that kind of thing. Gosh, it was just really special to be invited into that world and to be shown just even a, a sliver of what LGBT life is like. like and I what I think is one of the most challenging places to be yeah, of course. an American, let alone an LGBT American. Yeah, of course. And I really, really liked this part as well because and it's not just in that area, it's throughout the book. What I found so moving about these stories is that the people that you spoke to had no intention to leave where they were. They weren't going to go and make a difference and see progress anywhere else like New York or San Francisco. They wanted to see it happen where they were, where they were from. And that was such a beautiful constant throughout the book that everyone that you spoke to, whether they were in Utah, whether they were in Georgia, wherever they were, they wanted to see change in their community. They wanted to see that progress where they were standing right then and there. And they not only wanted to see it, but they wanted to be that progress, to be that change, to have a hand in making that happen. And I just, that was so powerful for me to not only hear these stories, but also the commitment. It was really beautifully surprising, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's in keeping with, you know, loving places that don't always love you back. And and sometimes that love drives people to want to change and transform those places to remove those obstacles rather than getting away from them. And like, I don't want the book to besmirch or scold anyone who would choose to leave, but I did want to draw attention to what I thought was like really special work being done by the people who were choosing to stay. Yeah, I completely agree. And you were in Austin at a very pivotal time for state legislation. And I believe that we have seen progression and I don't know what it is, but I feel like just when I think we're really getting somewhere where we need to get to, things like Bill 17 appear and it's passed by the state Senate, which happened just very recently. And this bill allows professionals and businesses to cite religious freedom as a reason to turn away business. And it's so frustrating to me, and I can only imagine that it's frustrating to you when it feels like we are moving one step forward, but it sometimes feels like we're going two steps back. Do you do you feel that way sometimes? The overall narrative is one of progress, and I do feel optimistic that we'll get to cultural acceptance of LGBT people within 15, 20 years. Whether legal acceptance works on that same timetable, I think is another question, and I think, to be honest, we'll be waiting longer than we are culturally for LGBT acceptance. But yeah, I think there's this dynamic when we get closer to full equality for there to be a really strident backlash. We saw that with marriage equality in the US. Mm -hmm. We're seeing it right now with trans issues where we start to get a taste of, oh, this is gonna happen, like marriage is gonna be legal or trans folks are gonna be protected from discrimination. And then wham, you see a lot of anti-LGBT groups and lawmakers really push hard to try and essentially drag their feet. But I think, honestly, at this point, they're trying to stop a runaway train. You can't stop the change that's happening within our culture around LGBT issues, because younger generations especially are coming out at really high rates that I think are reflective of the percentage of the population that's been LGBT the whole time. But as those people come out, as they enter the workforce, as they come out to their parents, friends, coworkers, family members, classmates, you just can't stop that kind of change. You can stack courts with anti-LGBT judges. 
you can raise a lot of money to do anti-LGBT political campaigning, but there's a ceiling to what they're going to be able to do and and time is going to run out for bills like that one. We just had the, you know, the transgender ban in the military and it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really gut-wrenching to hear and talk to transgender service members and their families right now, because in the military, essentially, like transgender service was a non-issue at the time that Trump decided to ban it. The chiefs of the various branches were on board. Service members sometimes had bad experiences, but overall largely reported, to me at least, that their colleagues were like, well, as long as you can get the job done, I, I really... And so, yeah, to me, this feels like pure politics. And it's really disappointing that it's happening. I don't think anyone expects the transgender troop ban to be in effect longer than five years. Gosh, I remember when I first came out in 2012, it was before sort of the transgender media moment. It was before same-sex marriage was legalized. And I think a lot of what we're seeing with the anti-trans backlash is post-same-sex marriage efforts from anti-LGBT groups to like keep fundraising around an issue. So they need trans issue to fundraise around. But I remember naively thinking like, oh, come out. Country's not super accepting, but states are kind of slowly getting on board. I can change the gender marker on my passport. Maybe I'll just kind of quietly, you know, slip under the radar and then same-sex marriage will be legal. I'll get married to my wife. Yeah, everything will be great. And then suddenly same-sex marriage gets legal and all the anti-LGBT <laughs> groups are like, Come out oh, of woodworks, yeah. yeah, now we're going to work on trans folks next. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I was having a really good time like being under the radar. Could we go back to that? Yeah, I guess in a way it, it's those hard moments and those challenges that make the progression and the success and the victory all the more worth it. But I have to admit, I did laugh a lot reading your book and I smiled and I just thoroughly enjoyed it. But what I did want to touch on is one of the harder moments of your book when you and Billy, when you guys stopped at Bucky's, which for those who don't know, Bucky's is a Texas institution. It is a massive, as you would expect on the Texas scale, gas station, petrol station, essentially. And it has everything from Bucky Nuggets, which is like this golden popcorn, to just literally every Texas memorabilia item you could ever not need. And they have a saying about their bathrooms. I don't know it verbatim, but it's essentially like, we're the best place for number one and number two. And, you know, that does make me smile. And the fact that there's a picture in your book of Billy in a Bucky's t-shirt. But it's going back to the topic, the hot topic, which I feel like is in the news and reported on in all the wrong ways, the fear of bathrooms when you are transgender. And I'm going to be honest, Samantha, this was really hard for me to read, more so because I had no idea how it was for you. And it is a topic that we do need to draw attention to because it helps people understand from your point of view. And as difficult as it is to talk about this, I would really appreciate it if you could kind of talk through this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for almost every trans person, fear of like physical violence or verbal harassment is kind of front of mind when you're using the restroom. And when you're writing a road trip book, especially bathroom stops, I think are like one third of the road trip experience. But for a lot of cisgender folks or non-transgender folks, it's sort of an unconscious part of the road trip experience. I think most folks are more concerned with a restroom that feels clean than they are with a restroom that feels safe. And so like 
earlier in my transition, especially <laughs> plotting out where to go to the bathroom on a road trip, I think felt like I was planning a bank heist. Here's the exit that I know has, you know, like a Starbucks or a Panera or something, some sort of restroom that I can lock and like be comfortable in. But I'm like really fortunate in that I've never faced violence, harassment inside a restroom. And I feel, you know, a lot more confident and secure now that I'm transitioned a long time ago now. But yeah, I wanted to touch on that fear because it is so present for folks. And I thought Bucky's was a great way to explore that because they boast about the cleanliness of their restrooms on millions of billboards seemingly around Texas. And, you know, at the time I was in Texas, Texas was also considering a bill that was going to try and restrict restroom usage for transgender folks by uh, birth certificate gender markers, uh, which is just a hugely onerous requirement for trans folks. In Texas, I think you need a court order to change your gender marker on a birth certificate, which means if you're a minor or if you don't have access to certain legal resources, that can be like almost impossible to do. And gosh, there's just so much politicking around the transgender restroom issue. And yet what I've found in sort of real life everyday experience is the vast majority of people don't really care Like the transgender restroom issue, I feel like became a political flashpoint in the U.S. because anti-LGBT groups were sort of cravenly looking for the next thing, the next like culture war issue to exploit. Not because there was some sort of grassroots groundswell of people being like, we need to kick trans people out of the restroom, right? Like trans people have been using the bathroom for decades, centuries even with no issues and all of a sudden coincidentally same-sex marriage becomes legal and people decide it matters somehow wanted to point out how ridiculous the panic is but also like draw attention to how real the fear is for a lot of trans folks yeah and the part where you talk about people who literally will not drink or eat because they don't want to stop to use the bathroom to do something that is natural for everyone. You know, I think it's Liver and Cop who said like the fight about transgender people in restrooms isn't just about restrooms. It's about transgender people being able to exist in public space. Yeah. Gosh, if we came up with some pill that meant people never had to go to the restroom again, it wouldn't be an issue. But yeah. as it's sterile humans yeah. and using the restroom is part of life that is often not discussed, but yeah. is just a fact of being alive and in the public sphere. And When you start restricting restroom usage, when you start making people feel uncomfortable using the restroom, what you're really doing is you're restricting their ability to be in public. You're restricting their ability to travel, to go out, to be in government buildings, to... And essentially telling a human they can't be a human. Yes. And and I think the anti-LGBT groups have been pretty successful at trying to make it seem like this is just a very small, localized issue of like restroom privacy or something like when in reality it's part of this much larger campaign to essentially deny transgender people the right to exist dehumanize yeah it's just appalling and it is fascinating because what i think of when I think about what I knew before I read your book when I I just learned so much reading your book is I feel like a lot of stories that are told through the media on a national level 
are just that. They are nationally recognized stories. Whereas what your book did is your book broke it down and recognized that it's not just a national issue, it's at a state level as well, which I think is really important. But, you know, there are those moments of progression and moments of change that are so worth celebrating, which alluding back to what you were talking about earlier about the U.S. Supreme Court, which it's four years this year, ruling that same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. And I remember where I was when it happened. I almost thought it was fake news because I was like, there's just no way that this wonderful thing has happened. And we've been talking about the hardships and the, and the tough stuff, but I would love to hear about a moment of joy that you had when you were experiencing this on the 26th of June, 2015, and perhaps how you celebrated Yeah, it's a way to celebrate, I suppose. But I was working and I had to write about the Supreme Court decision. And, you know, the the angle that I chose for my article was that same-sex marriage wasn't the end of the fight. And I think from the moment it was legalized, I was worried about people kind of sitting back and saying, oh, it's over. Same-sex couples can get married now. LGBT people, like, have everything we want when in reality there are just so many issues left to work on yeah and and we've seen today like clearly with stuff like the transgender military ban or these bills that are looking to legalize discrimination in the name of religion like the fight for lgbt equality is so far from over so i feel like the june 2015 moment was a moment of of relief uh exhilaration but also of like looking ahead to the future Like, what else can we do? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, personally, my wife and I have been together since 2013. And um, we we felt like we had made a commitment to each other that ran beyond what legal marriage would have meant to us at the time. Yeah, just a piece of paper. Yeah. We didn't rush to get married right then. We got married the following year. Mm -hmm. We eloped in a Florida courthouse. Lovely. And it was, you know, special and private, but also like largely practical too. Like we wanted to be able to be on each other's health insurance if one or the other was unemployed at the time and that kind of thing. I think it's important to take an issue like marriage and say, yes, this is like an emotional attachment for a lot of folks in it, but it also like practically matters for things like benefits and that kind of thing. And LGBT folks still need a lot of help with some of those concrete material gains that we're looking for, like non-discrimination protections in every state. It's like interesting to look back now Because, I mean, Republicans in the U.S. seem to have largely, like, written off debates over same-sex marriage. You know, I think there was some fear with, like, the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh that Obergefell v. Hodges, which was that June 2015 decision, would, like, get rolled back or overturned. That seems, like, less likely than some kind of attack on what marriage benefits mean or or some sort of more specific zeroed in attack on LGBT life. For me, one of the biggest problems is education. And I feel that this breeds something quite scary, which is ignorance and apathy. And that's why I personally feel that something like reading and books like yours are so important. And, you know, when you can pick up a book and connect with that story and you develop this empathy it is so rewarding and again developing that empathy is is just so equally important for me and for reading your book i i now truly understand your point of view and it can be such a powerful way to change a conversation 
and to change something like the status quo, which we have for so long had this monoculture and this lack of gender fluidity, which has really felt limiting in, in so many ways. I just wanted to get your opinion on whether you agree that education and, and things like reading are, are equally important. Yeah, I mean, I think stories matter so much. I think I think the number one driver of social change around LGBT issues in this country right now are people hearing each other's stories whether that's getting to know a friend who's LGBT or discovering that a coworker or friend is LGBT without having known it before. Just that personal connection is so important. And I think reading is a way to get to know somebody's story. It's a way to learn about somebody else's story. I wanted to be open and vulnerable in this book. You know, I had questions before writing it of like, how much of my own story do I want to put in? What do I want the balance to be between kind of memoir and interviewing other folks? And, you know, it's sometimes in moments I felt self-conscious, like there's too much of me in the book. But then at other moments, I was like, no, I I need the larger frame. Like I, I want it to feel less like a tidbits or collections of interviews and more like this that had a single personal art behind it that a reader could follow and relate to. And I hope I hit the right balance. I mean, what one thing that's been really amazing to hear from folks who've read it afterward is people saying like, people saying like, oh, I feel like I know you already. People who've read the book and then meet me for the first time. And I think I even write at the end of the book, there's a correlation and I I would hypothesize probably a causation between people getting to know more LGBT people and people becoming more LGBT accepting and more LGBT friendly themselves. And I write in the end of the book, like if you've read this far, like you know one transgender person and it's me. Like I, I wanted the book to have that effect for by the time someone got to the end of it they couldn't feel like I was just this stranger but like they had ridden in a car with me for a few weeks and knew my inner thoughts and inner dialogue Mm -hmm. and my quirks and that kind of thing and I think I wanted the book to help model some of that change that I saw happening while writing it and what a beautiful journey to go on as well and not just because you spent a long time in Texas I really think and this is my opinion of course but the best thing about your book is that it will be accessible for future generations and that makes me so happy and so hopeful and I really would like to know what do you hope to see in your lifetime and what do you wish for future generations yeah I hope the book seems kind of like a time capsule for future generations I hope it feels to them like they can relate to some of it. They can trace the origins of some of the struggles that they're still dealing with. But I hope largely it seems like archaic and outdated. I hope that by 2045, LGBT life in red states looks largely the same as LGBT life in blue states. And that acceptance has reached a point where geography seems less important than it does to folks in the national press right now. Yeah, so I hope by the time, for instance, my like four-year-old nephew is all grown up, he'll be like red states and blue states. Like, <laughs> what are those? think we'll always have political divisions in the U.S. Yeah. But um, I think Texas is a perfect example of like what's happening across red state America, which is the purpling of red states where 
folks realize, hey, we really care about issues like health insurance coverage. I hope the transformation that I'm writing about in the book one day makes the book feel dated, but I hope that, you know, obviously, selfishly, I still want people to read it and enjoy looking back on this time, but also, I don't know, spending some time with my story and journey. Before we go on to the last question, I want to read another passage from your book. Queerness itself is forever. It is everywhere, and it is irrefutably American. If you want to learn that for yourself, all you have to do is get in the car and drive. Take this book with you. And for my upcoming road trip that I'm going on in a week's time, I will absolutely be bringing this book with me. And I just cannot tell you enough how much I loved it and how special it is to me. Thank you so much for your kind words about the book. That means so much to me. Like as an author, it's just like always so gratifying and special when it connects with someone and just to have the opportunity to talk about it with you has meant a lot to me. So thank you for messaging me and and making this happen. I want to end our chat. Well, I don't want to end our chat, but I'm going to end our chat on the premise of this podcast, which is I'd love for you to imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf and you can add any book uh, that you want on the shelf to sit alongside yours, uh, perhaps authors or books that have inspired you. I would love to know what your bookshelf would look like. The book that I'll choose is The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It's a book that I reference sort of midway through Real Queer America. And a lot of people like The Little Prince. I'm one of that. It, it was a very special, important book to me growing up. And I think part of what The Little Prince captures is people just want love and friendship and to be excited and interested and invested in the world around them. And then kind of grown-up concerns and business business and politics get layered on top of that and can destroy that earnestness and that sincerity. And when I think about that in an LGBT context, it's like LGBT people, myself included, we just want love and acceptance. And it feels so simple and so matter of fact. And then all of this BS gets like thrown on top of that and threatens to kind of drown it out. And gosh, if there's something that I would want people to take away from the book and the reason why I would want it to be on a shelf next to the little prince, I want people to take away from that that LGBT people just want love. They just want a friend as good as the fox to (laughs) sit next to and, and tell them they like them, admire them, enjoy spending time with them such simple things but such wonderful things as well and I think what is really great is that the voices that we're hearing are loud but the LGBT community is louder. While you were talking it actually made me think of one of my favorite childhood books which is Harold and the Purple Crayon and it just gives me goosebumps thinking that that's purple the purple crayon and essentially for anyone who hasn't read it Harold and the Purple Crayon is about a young boy who literally has a purple crayon and he can draw himself to go anywhere he wants to go and I just think it's really nice that it's purple and that's how we should be seeing the United States and the rest of the world such a great place to stop Samantha thank you so so much for being here today I absolutely loved our chat so people know how to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that how do you want people to get in touch with you yeah I'm on Twitter at SLA writes I love to connect with readers thank you so much for being here today thank you for having me thanks for listening to this episode of shelf life I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading!